understanding the job is what's critical in being successful in innovation, not the customer. The customer is the wrong unit of analysis. Before we kick off our new episode in the Clayton Christensen series, I want to thank our sponsor, Nexus State. Nexus State are specialists in buying, selling, and managing property in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find Nexus State at next-estate.com. Our guest today is one of the world's experts in finding out what people want. He was a huge contributor towards the book, Competing Against Luck with Clayton Christensen. And I'm going to describe him the way Clay does in the book. It took eight years to develop the theory of disruptive innovation and write the book that explains it, The Innovator's Dilemma. In contrast, it has taken us nearly two decades to hone the jobs-to-be-done theory. And we summarize it in this book. What explains the difference? I had a treasure trove of data about disk drives which yielded the theory of disruption. We had no such luck with our jobs theory research. We had to collect the data person by person, company by company, and there have been no shortcuts. For these reasons, I am deeply indebted to so many people who have helped me develop this body of theory that describes an important cause of successful innovation. Two decades ago, this gentleman first walked into my office at the Harvard Business School with a lot of questions. He'd read my theory of disruption and was eager to apply it in his own consulting business where he helps clients. I don't think either one of us would have guessed at first meeting where this could have brought us. It was him and his partner, Rick, who first brought me the puzzle that eventually led to the theories of jobs to be done, and his work in the years since has helped me to shape it. He and I have met faithfully once a quarter for 20 years, and I don't think I've ever left a meeting without learning something from him. An engineer by training, early on in his career, he had the great fortune to be mentored by Toguchi, Deming, Moore, and Christensen, as we'll find out. It is his work applying and shaping jobs theory that has been the basis of our fruitful partnership. He now runs his own business, a consulting firm, The Rewired Group, and uses jobs theory on difficult innovation challenges for his clients. I can think of no better ambassador for jobs. Watching him interview a random volunteer from the audience is like watching a magician at work. I never fail to be amazed about what he elicits. It is a great pleasure to welcome a huge contributor to that book, Competing Against Luck, and in particular, The Jobs to be Done Theory. He is also the author of a brand new book that's behind me there, Learning to Build. Bob Mesta, welcome to the show. Aiden, thank you so much. Uh, like, you know, at some point, I've Karen read me the book, and, and uh, I just I, I would go back to hearing Karen read it, and, and you reading it like that just it brings almost tears to my eyes because it's just I miss Clay so much. It's just it's a it's a big hole in my heart because uh, of all of our collaboration on things. And he was the one thing I would say is Clay was always open and he was always curious, and so that that's how our collaboration kind of uh, uh, I'd summarize it. It was just it was beautiful. I was thinking about you as uh, the way you think and Clay often talks about like the disruptive theory being a lens that you apply jobs to be done theories in other lens and then you look at the problem and I was thinking about how your mind formed essentially because because of some of the struggles you had in your life like being dyslexic and then 
that became a lens. So you had to figure out how a way that became a lens through which to see the world. And then I thought about those amazing mentors that you had at such a young age being another lens, each of them being lenses. And then one goes on top of the other. And then you have this amazing, unique view of the world. Maybe you'll share a bit of that mentorship. In the book I just wrote, uh, it's really a homage to, to my mentors, but one of them is called Empathetic Perspective. And what between Clay and Taguchi and Deming and uh, Dr. Willie Moore, they, they, they all gave me different lenses. But what, what most people do, don't do is they, they almost think vertically, right? Like it's like, I know about this sense of knowledge, I know that. And it's, but these different lenses gave me this ability to see horizontally and, and to connect dots and to be able to see things that other people couldn't see. And that as a dyslexic, you, like the, the, part, the part that's broken for me is, is I can't actually keep track of the words as they kind of come into my brain. And so when a word gets stuck, it, like they back up on each other. So I lose focus. So what my, what my mom noticed was that I saw basically the first thing is she'd say, look at a paragraph. And she'd say, what do you see? I say, I see the spaces between the words. And she'd laugh and she'd say, okay, well, where's the biggest word? And I'd say, here's the biggest word. So she'd have me circle the five biggest words in, the, in, the, in that paragraph and then guess why they would be put together. And so it's this pattern recognition that really is really a, a, a specialty of mine that I've had and been developing um, as a very young child. But then to then get these different lenses, these gifts of these lenses from these different mentors to help me see that it's just, it, it, it gave me what I consider superpowers. And, and my whole thing is, is, and, and as much as Clay would talk about it being magic, the reality is, is like, we know there's no magic. It's all about being able to pay attention to the right details. And so ultimately that's what I'm doing now is I'm teaching people and, and mentoring people and working with people with the intent of passing on this, this skill, the, the, this craftsmanship of being able to understand what people really want as they look into the future. For those people watching us on YouTube, if you, if you're actually listening, I do recommend joining us on youtube because you can see bob's amazing studio and bob if you wouldn't mind i'd love if you'd show our audience the images on your wall there so there's a picture of clay in the background there but these are you created these you painted these because i can't read at night i i end up figuring ways in which to relax my mind and so i paint almost every night i have over I'm thinking I'm over 900 paintings already, and but these are, and I've got different algorithms I've written to help me learn how to mix paint and do all these different things. But it's it's helped me go along the way. But like in my office, I have I have these my four mentors basically. Sorry, there's a little glare on clay, but the, you know I'll say it's angelic. Um, but at the same time, these are the, my four mentors that are above my whiteboard, and basically they look down at me and I I I, I seek their advice and wisdom every single day. And so I painted them as a homage to them, but also to remind me that, that I am an extension of them and to pass it forward. Because again, I think of myself as almost a vessel that had no innovation abilities when I was growing up, but at the same time, uh, they saw me as almost a clean canvas that enabled them to pour their knowledge into me to help me go innovate on so many different things. And one of the words I used actually specifically so as purposefully was the word struggle and i said because of those struggles you were able to work harder than others but also i use that word because struggle is actually the first place to come from to look for progress if there's no struggle there's no progress i'd love you to explain that what's what's so interesting to me is the fact is if you if you if you study innovation deeply you start to realize that most things don't just come out of nowhere Right. And, 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 and most of the time it has to fit somewhere in people's lives. 
And so you start to realize that the struggling moment is the seed for all innovation. And so to me, one of the things that people would always try to build something that, you know, the greatest lie I was told was that, you know, build it and they will come. I like learn very quickly. That's just not true. <laughs> right. And so part of this is then realizing like, how do we find those struggling moments? And the struggling moments is basically those triggers, those moments where people go like, God, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be something else. And so you start to realize that, that, and if, if the, the component of struggle is that you want to do something better and you can't. And so part of this is to realize that you care about it because if you don't care, you don't struggle. And so care has to do with basically something that you're interested in and that you're willing to uh, either invest time or money or knowledge to basically figure out how to do better. And that's part of our, I think, our human you know, experience is that. And so that's really where struggling moments is. I say I've been str studying struggling moments for almost 40 years. Everything from, you know, uh, um, what I would say is, uh, you know, mattresses and pickles and, and uh you know, uh, adult incontinence uh, uh, products and, you know, everything from there to software to, you know, uh, I've been studying religions now and uh, careers and all these other things. And it's just all wherever people struggle is where I'm trying to actually feel innovations. Bob, you remind me of it. There's a beautiful quote by C.S. Lewis that it goes as follows. Hardships often prepare ordinary people for extraordinary destiny. Oh. Absolutely. And, I, and I, absolutely. I think struggle like that, that's the thing that like, it, it absolutely sucks in the moment. But if you hadn't yes. gone through the struggle of dyslexia in, in your early days yep. in school and, you know, trying to connect the patterns, you wouldn't have learned that skill. That's, that's exactly right. This is so one of the things my, I would say my mom taught me, but, but life has taught me is that whenever there's something bad going on, that means there's going to be good on the other side. It's almost when, if it's struggled enough, there's, that means there's opportunity to go learn and do something new. And so what's so funny is like, anytime there's something that bad happens, I'm like, okay, what do we go do? Like, it's like, how do we go help? And how do we go do th And it's, it's that notion of, I don't look forward so that what I've taught myself is I don't look forward to bad things, but I see I see bad things that happen to people as opportunities to make the world a better place. And so that's ultimately con constantly how I'm thinking about things as opposed to bad things happening to me. My thing is that something bad happens to me. I'm like, what am I supposed to learn from this? What what skill am I supposed to be gaining from this? Right. And so that's really kind of where I come from. I love that. And, and I'll share just a quick metaphor. I, I gave my kids one day when I was when I was younger when i was giving my kids a bath that's how young young they were and i was my my younger son had had a bad day and so i i went in to prepare the bath and you know pull up the sleeve testing the water start swooshing the water right and left and i noticed then you know the wave so there's a wave in the water and he loved being put in the water being swooshed left and right and i said to him come on in here jake comes in and i said look at this this body of water is the same body of water, but there's a peak in the trough of the of the wave, a crest and a, and a trough at the same time. And I was like, this is kind of what happens in life. There's lows, but then there's a high, and then there's a high, and then there's a low. So, so you got to enjoy the highs and manage the lows. And I was like, kind of looking at him to go, does he? Do you get it? And and then he just goes, will you put me in there and do that? <laughs> so I started swishing them in left and right. What's interesting, and I would say that what Taguchi had really kind of taught me, uh, again, having kind of a, an Eastern orientation, which was the, this aspect of 
there's always going to be highs and there's always going to be lows. Be 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 ready for both and realize that you have to actually when you're when you're highs, be ready for for it not to be there all the time. And when it lows, again, be ready for it not to be there all the time. But but like what are the how do you manage? And managing when it's going up is very different than managing when it's going down. And you have to realize where you are, but always keep your center. Understand where the center is. And if things are good, they'll get bad. And if things are bad, they'll get good. And so ultimately, just be happy with the center. <laughs> Beautiful, man. I, I didn't know that came from Tidiguchi as well. I, I'm, uh, I, I feel like Clay learning something from every, <laughs> from every interaction with Bob Mesta. But let, let's build on it, Bob, because I, I get to jobs theory now because you talk about, the, in a way, if you, again, picture this, three overlapping circles. So there's a social, functional, and emotional level to every job as well this is an important advancement as we make progress through the theory i'm going to go back to taguchi for a second is taguchi would say that nothing basically works without energy and so we as humans don't work without energy and so where does our energy come from that motivates us to change because our our underlying premise is to actually be creatures of habit we would rather do the same thing over and over again unless it doesn't work. And the day that it doesn't work or we think we can do better is when we change. But we prefer not to change because most people are resistant to it. And so ultimately, we're, we're using that, that, that momentum to then understand kind of like what, where does change come from and where does the energy come from? And so when you look at it and you listen to people, I've listened to people for 40 years around this, and there's, they, they fall into three kinds of buckets. And what I call functional energy, which is <clears throat> it's almost like direct effort it's it's uh, the number of steps. It's things that are mechanical in nature of what caused like God. This is just too hard to do. This is too complicated to do. Um, that's that's what we would call functional energy. There's emotional energy. This makes me frustrated. It makes me look bad. Um, it's uh, it, it's there's there's something that's inside me as I know I can do better. It's being motivated from internally to say that you want to do something different. And that's, that's what we call emotional energy. And then the third one is, is uh, a little bit different, which is it's, it's uh, what we call social energy. It's about being able either perceived or being influenced by others that, so like it's, you know, your boss uh, uh, basically puts pressure on you that makes you frustrated because you don't want to look bad. That makes that you want to go change the CRM system. And so part of it is, is where do these, where does the energy come from? How does it get transformed? And what is the frame that you wrap around it? So when you talk to people about, ooh, why'd you buy a new car? They typically give you the mechanics of it, but they don't talk about the emotional part of the purchase. They don't talk about, you know, the social part of the purchase in terms of what, what they want people to think or what they want people not to think, et cetera. And so you start to realize like all all purchases, all changes have a social, emotional, and functional component. Let's couch it in an example, Bob. And you have so many because you've built so many businesses. And I'd love you to share one that will be of particular interest for our, our new sponsor here in the Innovation Show, which is Next Estate, a German-based real estate company who buys and sells properties for the English-speaking market. I was telling them, by the way, the owner. He's got to check out jobs to be done because essentially he's doing a lot of jobs for his market over there. But when he understands the theory, he'll really love it. And I loved your example of one of the businesses you built, which was a construction business who had the condos looked amazing. They had every cutting edge piece of technology, a sales team that was available six days a week if you needed. And they couldn't sell a damn condo <laughs> until you brought in jobs. 
the way that we were taught in business school is just add more features and, you know, you know, uh, add promotion, reduce cost, like do reduce price, like, oh, you know, add free granite, do all these things. And, and the reality is, is like when you start to talk to people about why they move, like, and, and when they move, you start to realize that, that it's one is, it's a larger process than the moment of buying it, it. In some cases it's, it's, it's months, if not years of things that have to fall in place for you to say, today's the day I'm ready to move. Now they might all happen. You know, it might seem like it all happens at once, but the reality is like, if you actually understand kind of the things that caused it, it's actually different. And the other part is it's not random. Nobody randomly buys a house right? Everything's cost. And so if we understand those principles, we can actually lay all those things out, right? But when you start to think about moving, right? And buy, so uh, one of the groups we bought, uh, we built for were downsizers. Think of people like your parents, right? And they've raised a family in this bigger house or bigger flat. And ultimately the whole aspect is, is like, okay, it's time for us to kind of, you know, we don't need all this room and you know what, we want access to some of the money and whatever. It's like, okay, what's causing us to move into one of my condos, right? And you start to interview people about this and you start to realize there's, there's a whole bunch of different things that are going on. Part of it is that, you know, they, they, they don't want to take care of the house anymore, right? They're, they're getting older and it's harder to do different maintenance. So you start to see these pushes that make them open, as Clay would say, questions. They quest, create questions to create spaces in the brain for a solution to fall into. And eventually they start to come thinking like, boy, we should probably move. They don't know what they want to move to. They just know that it's time to start looking. And then ultimately you start to realize at some point the, the process that lays out is like they have to go look at different places. They have to actually see what they like and what they don't like. And, and ultimately they have to be able to kind of make trade-offs of what, how far they want to go, what sizes do we want. And, and ultimately one of the things that we found out was the hardest thing came later when they had to move. So emotionally, one of the emotional barriers or energy resisting them to move was the aspect of cleaning out the closets, Right. They had, you know, 10, 12 closets full of stuff that they had for 40, 30, 40 years. And, and at some point they would buy one of my condos and they come back three or four weeks later and say, we can't move because I can't clean out the closets. They go through three boxes of Kleenex and all that other stuff. And you start to realize, what do you do? And so what we did is we said, you know what? We'll actually pay for moving and two years of storage and a place to sort all the, all, all the stuff. And basically we were able to convert people faster because all of a sudden, instead of having to offer free granite, we actually included moving and storage. And to be honest, we included it in our pricing. So we actually made money on it. And so ultimately being able to understand where the friction was, where the struggles were, we're able to reduce them. You're able to actually then help people make progress. Sales went up over 22%. It's an amazing story. And one, one of the things to understand, and I think the language is the language you offer us, the common language to understand this is really important. So you're working in an organization, same thing. There's, there's a push and a pull always going on. So one of the ones you talked about in this case was the anxiety of the new and then the habit of the present. David Schoenthal, who's a, one of my teaching partners at, uh, at the Kellogg School, he talks about is there's fuel. David was on the show, man. Was he? Yeah, David's awesome. Yeah, it was a new book. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Dave, David, yeah, David talks about fuel and friction, right? And that's all based on the forces. And so the fuel is basically pushes and pulls, you know, pains and gains. But it's the friction that actually is the thing that most of the time, if you reduce the friction, then people can make the progress. And so it's not about adding more push or more pull. Sometimes it's about reducing friction that enables them to make progress. And so I think it's being able to understand it's a system and that it's something causes people to say, I'm going to stop doing this and start doing that. And ultimately, it's not random. 
Um, if we treat it as if it's random, then the fact is we'll never find out the true causes. You know, um, you know, Taguchi would always say, you know, you know, everything is cause, nothing is random. We're just not smart enough to know the causes, so we call it random. And so to me, every time somebody says, oh, that's a random event, I'm like, yeah, that's lazy. You know, but, you know, with the work ethic we have is like, oh, that's Taguchi calling me lazy. If you think it's random, then you don't really understand. Oh, you're right. Okay. Go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> it's it's so important though, isn't it? I, I, I often think, Bob, when, when I meet my maker and I look down and we see as these spiritual creatures, we see stuff that was staring us right in the face we got it oh, exactly. oh oh my god and we can have a laugh at how stupid we were or how lazy yeah. we were when we didn't look for the cause yeah so so i'm so deep into causality that i i i actually have like i've for example i don't believe something's random though though like technically and scientifically it's random Right. But the reality is like, I, I say that I'm just not smart enough to know why that person's sitting next to me. So when I sit down in a plane and somebody sits down next to me, I choose to frame it in a way to say like, why is the universe putting this person next to me now? What am I supposed to learn? And I have like three or four questions I ask and they either engage or don't engage. And if they don't engage is like, well, the universe is telling me nothing, but it's, it's it like, it's not that I necessarily believe that it's like, uh, um, you know, divine intervention, but more like I choose to frame it in a way that makes me a better person. Right. So there's a, a, a book I'm working on. It's called the five lies. I tell myself to be productive. And it, and it's, and it's these, these things where like, I, like I realize you can tell yourself one way or you can tell yourself another way. Like I'm going to live forever or I'm going to, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to die. And if it, like, if you understand which one is more empowering to you, you start to realize like at some point, like, you don't know when you're going to die, but you can actually choose a date or you can actually choose like you don't have to think about it. But what I found is the more people who have a, a, a firm notion of when they're going to die, they can make trade-offs of what not to do, what to stop doing, because now life is finite. But this is all cause, it's, it's all causality, right? And, and, and it's, 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 this is where people confuse data and correlation and all these other things with causation. And Finding causation is very, very hard and it's very, very difficult because one is we don't have usually words or phrases or concepts to describe it. And two is we don't have ways to measure it. And we usually have easy ways to measure, but don't tell us anything. So we have a lot of noise without a lot of signal. One of the things you told me off air before we started was what you did in your own life, where you created this fictional death day and then and then work backwards from there. This is I thought this was so valuable. So this is how I've written all my, it's like people, people are keep asking like, how are you doing all these? Like I started a podcast, I've written four books. I've got, you know, two more coming. Like, like, how do you, how do I keep, and I've, you know, I'm building what, three pieces of software or, you know, and I, I sit on board, I, think, I do all these things. And like, how do you do all that? And part of it came about almost like six years ago, seven years ago, I read a book or I, I have a very good friend, Todd Rose and Todd Rose uh, wrote a book called the end of average, but he also wrote a book called, um, dark horse. And he studied people who basically came out of nowhere to change industries. And part of it is how people change their context. But the interesting part is a majority of those people who literally have changed the world had a near-death experience of some sort. And what they did is they valued time over everything else. And so in that moment, I basically said, all right, well, how am I going to do that? Like, I don't want to have a near-death experience, but like, how do I create something like that? So I designed a, 
you know, a mock-up. And I basically took, so my mom was, uh, this, she basically helped me. She was a saint to me. Um, but she died very young at 62. She basically, um, said she, every time she was a uh, Detroit school teacher and she'd always say like, you know, Oh, don't worry. I'll do that when I, you know, when, when I retire, I'll go travel or, or, you know, I'll, I'll play golf when I retire. Right. All these things were all about getting to retirement. Um, she, uh, she, uh, she retired at 62, uh, four weeks into it, realized she had uh, stage four colon cancer and died four months later. And so all that stuff she had been planning to do, she was robbed of. And that emotional, that, that emotional, just like, uh, I, I don't even know how to explain it, like trauma to me is like, okay, like what if I can actually think about it my way? And so I took my mom's birthday and her death, they added it to mine. And so it's, it is uh, December 17th, 2027. Um, I will be 62 years old by that point in time. It's 59 months. And what I do is it literally, I look at it and say, what do I do month by month? And so part of it is when people say, oh, you know, when I really started to look at this, there was this moment where I, you know, thought about my children, right? And so if I have five years and I see I have four children, I see them once a quarter and I have five years, I'll see my kids 20 more times in my life. That's just hard to take. And so what do I do, I literally go find plate. Like, so I'm like, I go out. Uh, like right before Thanksgiving, I went to San Francisco and saw two of them and I gave a talk and I, I taught a little bit and I, I did some advising and, but I like, whatever I can do to get out to where my, my kids are, it helps me actually fulfill it where I can see them once a month. Right. So these are the kinds of things. And, and to be honest, the day, December 18th, 2027, if I'm alive that day, guess what that is? Bonus. <laughs> right. And, and so all of a sudden it's like, now I can say like, well, I've got everything in line of there. And, and so you start to have this whole notion of being able to, to realize like I can put pressure and it forces me to just cut things out of my life that don't add value or don't help me make progress or don't feel like I'm contributing. And at the same time, be able to be way more uh, demanding on my time and how I help people. And so to be honest, I've been able to help, you know, almost like five times more people because I'm more. Like I make people prepared to come meet me as opposed to literally just, hey, let's sit down and talk. All those kinds of things are just helping me have more and more impact as I get closer and closer to that day that I probably won't die on. But if I actually convince myself that that is when I will die, then I'll actually make very different decisions. Oh, man. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I, you know, I was saying to you before we came on air as well, one of the reasons I wanted to do this show was because how will you measure your life actually change the course of my life? And I remember, I remember a moment where I was working very hard in, in a company I was working in. And again, my kid, it was only about three at the time. I was holding my phone, answering an email when I was supposed to be playing with him. So he was only, you know, enjoyed daddy coming home to play. And little hand comes up, grabs my hand and he goes, daddy, being on your phone isn't playing. And my heart just broke. And and then coincidentally, and I've written about this, uh, coincidentally, I found this poem called The Last Time. I won't give you that quote now, that poem, because it's quite long. But I found out that between the day your child is born and they turn 18, you get 940 Saturdays and, and 260 of those are gone by their fifth birthday. Wow. See, see, that's a great. So that's a great notion of being able to say, like, this is what's going on. And there's a real time wall. There's a real, de you know deadline here that's that's very very clear and that if you don't actually know it not knowing it you actually squat you don't you don't do anything with that time that's so awesome it put things in perspective for me where 
I I make myself not only physical physically present and the hardest thing is being mentally present when I'm around but also I I don't I don't go to the pub on a Friday night and then suffer all day Saturday because I'm cranky because I've had beers or whatever because I go I'm going to be there for my kids until they don't want me there so it's their choice. It's not- and it's faster than you think. It's yeah. faster than you think. Oh, how many children do you have? How many children do you have? I have two boys. Two boys, and okay. and the oldest guy's thirteen, and and now he's all about you know training together okay. and stuff like that. I'm yeah. absolutely savoring it. Love it because yeah, I know yeah. it's gonna it's gonna fizzle yeah. out. You know, is he playing rugby? Is he playing rugby? No, no, he's 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 just into uh, uh, training and uh, he does Krav Maga. You know the Afghan. Yeah, martial- oh, I know what Krav Maga. Is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, it's it's great because I have a connection point with both. Both of them, and they're very different. But it, yeah, and, anyway, our point to our audience: don't waste yeah. a day. Don't waste it. Don't go don't to shitty meetings. Don't organize the I, meeting. It's one of the drivers yeah. of me doing this show, Bob. It's one of the reasons I do it. So for me, at thirty-five, I I kind of hit a point where I I finally like people kept telling me to work on my weaknesses, and I basically finally said, "Look, I'm never going to learn to spell. I'm not really good writer. I like 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 this is like this, it's not going to happen." So I finally told people I was dyslexic. My mom made me say that I should never be, you should never tell people because they'll judge me the wrong way. And I got to the point where I just said I couldn't do it anymore. And so when I did that, everyone went like, oh gosh, that makes so much sense. Okay. That's not a problem here. I'll help you this way. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and so all of a sudden it wasn't as big a deal, but the fact is, is all I've done since I've been 35 now is focus on basically what I would say is what, what I'm good at and anything that I suck at, I literally go find people who love to do what I suck at. And so that's how I've surrounded myself with people like that. And I have a small, I, I had a bigger team. I have a small team now and we're all, uh, we, we, we laugh because this time of year we talk about as the, the land of misfit toys, like the, the toys that just don't seem to work just right. But when you put us together, we actually have a lot of fun. So <laughs> beautiful jigsaw, man. Perfect. So I, I, one of the reasons I was saying about the social aspect and you teed us up nicely with, with the idea of create this death day and then work backwards it was there's events that happens in a customer's what life that push them towards a decision and you found this out in the condo sales again bringing it back to that the method itself is built more on criminal and intelligence interrogation than traditional market research because at some point people lie and they don't they don't lie like with malice they just remember it a little differently than other times and so you have to kind of get them into the zone and so one of the things i'm interviewing a couple why why they're uh you know, they, why they bought uh, one of our condos. And, you know, at some point in time, they're like, you know, the first thought uh, happened between Thanksgiving and New Year's where they're like, oh, you know, I want to, you know, we should think about moving. And then January, they start looking and in February, they got a real estate agent. And I kept going like, nobody randomly does anything. What had to be going on in their heads that said, yeah, we need to go get a real estate agent. And they're like, yeah, nothing. They couldn't remember a thing. And I'm like, okay, here's, I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little weird. We're going to think about this like a documentary. Like, so when did you sign this document for it to, to be, get the realtor? And they're like, eh, it was, you know, middle of the month. I'm like, okay, weekend, weekday. Oh, it was a weekday. Did they come? Did you go to their place or did they call? Oh, they came here. I'm like, okay. And I said, here's the weird question. What were you wearing? And they said, oh, you know what? We were dressed in a, you know, in, in basically black suits and I was wearing a black dress. And it was like, Okay, why? It's like, well, we just came from a funeral. I'm like, oh. And all of a sudden you started to hear that the fact is, is they had a conversation the night before that was like, oh my gosh, you know, a friend of ours just passed and they're going to, now the, the, uh, the, 
the the widower or widow has to basically move without the without their spouse and they're like we don't want that to happen to us and all of a sudden you start to realize like that's a pattern and being able to see that emotional trigger and understand when it happens i move my uh, advertising from the from the real estate section to the obituaries for the for those condos and my traffic went up 37% <laughs> And my cost went down 70% because, no, again, it's back in the day when we had newspapers, but it was still way cheaper to advertise in the, in the, in the obituaries than the real estate section. <laughs> Crazy. One of the other things you noticed was that the dining room table was one thing, right? But the, the other thing then was, and this is where the emotional aspect comes in and then recognizing it, but then also the sorting room that you created, I thought they were absolute gems, but they came from that interrogating and treating the job to be done like a, a documentary. Ultimately, how did people convince themselves to finally hire a mover? Because they haven't moved in 40 years. They don't really, the last time they moved, literally they had family probably help them. They never had formal movers. They don't like, there's all these different things. So we tried to figure out from all that interrogation, we figured out how to make that easy for them. Now, if you've read Competing Against Luck, you'll know the jobs to be done story about the milkshake and why people hire a milkshake. Bob has spoken about that in most podcasts and most appearances, public appearances. So I'm not going to do that to you, Bob. That's like you're being the the famous band and people kind of going play that song and you're like, oh no. <laughs> so Bob has loads of other singles, loads of other al albums. And I'm going to go to one that I, I love, which is the mattress story. So this is related, obviously, to the condos, but the mattress story. And then we'll go on to what about a field of knowledge or a field of expertise? And we'll talk about education. And that's closely related to your friend, Michael Horn. But let's talk about mattresses. One of the lenses that I was taught very early was this lens of what I call the supply side and the demand side. Supply side is kind of what we're mostly taught, especially as an engineer. It's like you have a system that basically produces a product and that product has features and benefits. And, you know, that's, I, I would, I see that on the, uh, what I would say is on the, on the, on the left side. On the right side is, is basically what I call the demand side, which is basically what causes people to say, today's the day I'm going to pull that product into my world. And they're two completely independent systems. And there, there's some feedback and feed forward, if you will, but there's a big wall between the two. And it's, you know, 10 feet thick and 100 feet high. And, you know, when you're building a product, typically you make the product. So think of a mattress. You make a mattress and you say, all right, I have a ma uh, mattress manufacturing uh, business unit. Basically, we can we bring in foam. We bring in fabric. We basically cut things to size. We sew it together. We, we shrink wrap it and send it out. And so the first thing they do is they literally climb up that wall and they look at the very the, – from the very top, they look down on all the people who basically need mattresses. And the things that they see are – you know, furniture stores and uh, hotels and colleges, and they have all these channels, right? But what they don't—they they, a lot of times they miss—is they don't realize like what causes an individual to say, "Today's the day I need a new mattress." And so, when you dive over that wall and you start to look at it and say, "What causes somebody to buy a new mattress?" It turns out that there's really only three fundamental jobs to be done, right? And one of them is because I can't sleep, or Basically, you know, I'm waking up, you know, I'm not resting well enough. And to be honest, most people don't even know their mattress is bad. They have no way of measuring it, right? And so when you study people who actually buy mattresses, one of the greatest competitors to a new mattress isn't Serta or Simmons or Sealy or, you know, a, a local mattress manufacturer. It's actually a bottle of Zequil or a Sleep Aid. 
right? And so one of the things we found out in interrogating people is at some point in time, they always try other things. They try melatonin, they try all these different things, and then they try basically a topper, and then they get new sheets, and then they get, you know, all the other, and then finally they get to basically saying, all right, what, none of these are helping, maybe it's the mattress. And then the mat, they change the mattress and it works great, but they don't know which one of those things got them there. So part of this is understanding that journey of what caused people to do that. But what was interesting when we did this is you actually started to realize that there were four really underlying problems or frictions that were in place. One was when you had to buy a mattress, you had to go to a store. And when you went to the store, it typically was empty, but there'd be 50 to 100 mattresses in it and you have to go lay on it. And you'd have two or three salespeople sitting there waiting for you to ask you like questions. And you really don't know what you want to buy. You don't really know what you're trying to buy. And typically you end up buying the most expensive thing you can afford because you just want to sleep because you're not sleeping, right? But nobody's really well-informed. So the first thing was, how do we make it easier for people to choose which mattress they are by asking them questions? The second part was then, how do we actually get it to them without having to actually have them go to a store? And, and so ultimately, Casper built a business in, a, in an industry that was very, very crowded, right? There was more mattresses than people needed. And what happened is they walked in and they created a billion-dollar business, right, by understanding how to make it easy to, easy to buy, easy to ship, easy to return, Get me a bed when I know it. Because the, the, the real problem is this. How many people want a new mattress but don't know how to get it? And that's the premise. And when you change that view from – so like when I was a builder, I went from, no, I'm not a builder. I'm a mover. If I have to move people from their old house to the new house, and if I look at it that way, then I have then moving and storage should be part of my offering. And actually fixing up their old house was part of my offering. And so part of this is to realize when you start to understand the, the process by which people make – change. So this is not how we want them to make change. This is how they really make the change. And studying that, then we can actually find other people who want to make that change. And so that's how you, if I, I, I very few interviews, 10, 12 interviews, I can tell you how a whole market works by understanding the causation behind it. This probably goes back to your time with Taguchi and team where you're, you're digging. I, I often, I thought about that. I think it was Michelangelo when he was asked about sculpting is like, I, I see the angel in the statue and I keep digging until I find it, you know, and really, that's what you do. It's it's onion, onion peeling, you have a background in the automotive industry as well. The five whys, the Toyota five whys surely played a role. Yes, exactly. I think that's, that's where it went. And I realized, like, I, I became very annoying every time I go, well, why did you want that? Why did you want that? And they're like, Oh, my God. So I had to learn some new technique wrapped around it. And so Chris Voss has a great book called Never Split the Difference. And he teaches all those basic you know, interrogation skills that I use every single day. You'd make a great executive coach. I'm, I'm in the midst of, of building a practice around that. So that, that like uh, in 2023, I will have an executive coaching arm because I really want to start helping individuals get better. And so I think that's kind of where I'm headed with my with my in, progress for me is now about helping others who are in the or who are in that driver's seat. And, and it's almost like the help I wish I had when I was there. And so trying to figure out how to kind of get into that market, that's what I'm actually, I'm studying the struggling moments now and how people hire coaches. Nice, man. Well, you let me know about that. I'll, I'll definitely buy that, copy of that book. But you, you I, I think that's ultimately what is in your heart now from talking to you is you've fished for people and now you need to teach them how to fish because you can get to more people that way. And that's why you're doing education and outreach and your podcast. I think I think the other thing is I I feel like since since all all four have passed that I feel like their their brilliance is is kind of dimming and I want to I want to make sure that their that knowledge 
gets passed on and pa- moved down because I think the fact is like I, I feel like if I look at the you know stuff we were doing in the '90s uh, around quality and what was going on is like like I don't feel like so, like there's no the think of this uh, think of the software industry. My belief is most of the software code that's written is rework. Right. So how do we actually reframe quality of software as opposed to the quality being inspected output to the quality of the input? And how do we rethink and apply this? Because I feel like we pay engineers a lot of money to write a lot of bad code. Do you know what? You've teed me up beautifully for something you talk about, which is stack fallacy. And I'll let you explain what this is, but I'll tee you up with a quote. You say, a focus on the product spec rather than the job spec gets repeated all the time. You tell us this misstep is so common in the high-end tech world that Anshu Sharma of Storm Ventures has earned justifiable recognition for calling attention to the problem, which he dubs stack fallacy. Stack fallacy highlights the tendency of engineers to overweight the value of their technology and underweight the downstream applications of that technology to solve customer problems and enable desired progress. Stack fallacy is the mistaken belief that it is trivial to build the layers above yours, Sharma says. You've worked with many companies in the tech field as well. I'd love you to share some examples. The stack fallacy is one of those things where where you actually, it's like the, it's almost the sign of disruption. Like, like if I see where people are competing so hard that they're actually one-upping each other all the time. Ooh, think of uh, Nikon, uh, Canon, Hasenblatt, Fuji, you know, the camera industry, they're literally up one upping each other with size of me- uh, sensor and, and lenses and, you know, speed and size, making it bigger, making it smaller, making it, you know, all these different, th- you know, like all these combinations. But, but what happens is, is they're, they're listening to their best customers. And what happened to me is that, that they actually ignored the low end of the market, the people who just wanted to actually take a picture. And so they had stuff at the low end, but in the end, they never had the camera with them. So the best camera was the camera with them. And Apple saw that. Apple literally had a very crappy camera on the, uh, on the iPhone uh, 3G. Even the 4 was okay. But as it got better, they started to realize more and more people took pictures. One, because at some point they, they had the phone with them. But two, the fact is now they had places to go share those photos where most photos sit in a box. And so you started to realize like all of a sudden where where – Again, a- Apple didn't see themselves as a as a f- f- uh, like just a uh, like a camera company. They saw them as basically a, a basically helping you become a better photographer, and so they included the software where most people didn't include the software, or it was as chunky in between. You bought Adobe, and then I had to learn a whole new language. Where Apple basically said, "Click, you know, change the tone." They made you actually a really good photographer very very quickly, and I think that's the whole notion of. The, the, the loss here is where people end up kind of engineers. And again, I'm an engineer. So I will tell you, I, I know the stuff that I could build and I literally could twist it so it would benefit somebody. But the reality is like I had no real facts to know that people would pull those things into their lives. And so I'm, I'm very much tend to over engineer the product. And that's why I start on the demand side, because at some point, the, the real open market, real growth, Clay would say, always comes from the low end. Otherwise, you're just trading one one product for another product versus helping people come into the market is very, very different, right? And so that's where like Paul, Paul LeBlanc's story comes in at SNHU, right? He realized, you know, Michael Horn and I basically wrote a book called Choosing College off the research we did from, uh, for um, Paul. Um, and, and 
what he ended up doing is realizing that those students who were online students were very, very different. So in 2010, he had 500 online students and we went and interviewed some of them to understand what, 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 why were they coming? They were usually older. They typically had, uh, uh, they've been in the workforce. They had, they didn't really have a degree or they, they had a degree and they wanted to go somewhere else. And so you started to realize like what was really going on. And so we found the jobs of why people go back to school. And what's interesting is these people were at the time were willing to pay full price to never set foot on campus, but to watch the, watch the, you know, watch all the video and then literally take the test. But, but in the end, be able to, um, you know, just get the degree so they could get a new job, right. Or get a different job or get a promotion. And you started to look at kind of those reasons why. And ultimately what Paul realized is these were people who wanted to step it up. So they had to actually make some changes to how they actually did uh, admissions, how they did uh, academic advising, but they ultimately focused on basically people who wanted to go back to school, but couldn't. And that's where real growth came from. And it started, but we went from, from 500 and and basically 2010, 2012, we had 17,000. Then he had 35,000. Right now, this year, he's over 150,000 students. He's one of the largest universities in the world because he's not going after the best education. He's going after people who are very specific of like, it's time for me to go back because I want to get a better job. And so he's got the master's in nursing. He's got a ma- he's got all these different degrees of helping people both transition from one career to another or to double down and get deeper in their current in their current field and allow them to do it in a way that's actually cheaper and easier than anywhere else. I love that story of, Paula Blank, because you you tell us where they go digging to go, okay, not everybody's the same here. Some people are single parents. Some people are fully committed to this. Some people are double jobbing. Some people are retired. Yeah. Right? It's like, what's what's a retired person doing? It's so relevant in today's world where, as Michael talks about, you you need to have more on-ramps and off-ramps as people have to upskill and and downskill and forget and learn on an on an ongoing basis. Yes, I think that I think that's exactly right. And and what I'm so what one of the things I'm focusing on where Clay would focus on theory, I'm trying to focus on skill because I feel like skill is that combination of of repetition as well as craftsmanship. There's a part art to a skill. And so at some point there's like, and I feel like we're missing the human element of how things really are created and that we're using too much precision around something that's not that precise yet. I just wanted to say as well, I'm going to plant a seed for our audience here, learning to build. We're going to be doing an episode live together in March, all going well. Uh, Bob's going to be over here in Dublin with me. So we're going to share that then. Bob, I, I thought I'd share something that's important because you mentioned this concept of overshoot. So I, I go up the curve, I get a better and better product. One company that you've worked with and that also was a great contributor to the book was Scott Cook and Intuit and QuickBooks. And they actually doubled or more their market size by actually making a simpler product. Half the features and twice the price, right? And it really started with this whole notion of... of uh, you know, basically why were small business owners, uh, so we would talk about as anomalies. Anomalies embedded in the anomalies of the market are basically the DNA of tomorrow. And so what what Scott went off and did is he literally went and said, like, how, why are these small businesses using Quicken, which is a personal finance tool, to run their business? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, Right. And ultimately, as you start to look at it, he realized that there were more and more small businesses unit. And he said, well, we should build a small business software package. So he went and I asked accountants to go look at it. 
And they came back with this really complicated thing. And then, you know, the, the team he said used jobs to be done basically went off and, and started to realize like this had to be easy enough that I could, you know, basically do it myself because if I'm a small business, I don't want to hire an accountant. I want to hire another painter. I want to hire another baker. I want to hire another, you know, whatever, another person who can help me with the business, not somebody to help me on the overhead. I want to be able to do it myself and then pass it to my accountant or pass the, you know, for taxes and stuff. Right. So ultimately it was one of those things where it's like, it had to be easy enough that they could do it. And the competitor wasn't other software. The competitor was hiring somebody. And so that's where we knew where it got too hard, where they didn't have enough knowledge. And so if you look at quick QuickBooks, the funniest thing is they only usually advertise two things. I think they're doing a third one now, but one, one is basically get paid faster. It's the number one reason why somebody gets actually a, an accounting package is that's what causes them to do it. None of those other things in the feature set, they can't even relate to until they actually have the accounting system, right? The other one is pay, pay your contractors easier because most people complain about writing checks and mailing them and doing all that other stuff. And so they basically advertise in those two things. But then once you're in, it's like, oh, do you need help with payroll? Do you need help with insurance? Do you need a loan? Do you need credit cards? Oh, by the way, we just bought MailChimp. We can help you with marketing services. So like once you're in, you're in, but they, they don't try to sh shout every feature and benefit they do at every moment in time. They actually wait for you to be ready for them. And ultimately then can buy those services as you, you will value, how say, you will value them when the context wrapped around you is right. Context creates value. Most people don't understand that. It's like when you said earlier on about Joe, Joe dies, it's an event. It sparks me to action to go and actively look for a new condo because I've said I've been doing it forever. It's not the subtleties of one event. It's the set of events. This is what people try. Everybody's when they hear root cause, people think of like one thing. What's the one thing that they, you know, cause them to do this? And it's never one thing. It's a set of things. And part of it is being able to understand the sets of pushes and pulls and anxieties and habit. And what you start to realize when you describe it as a set, the pattern is actually really easy to see. But if you try to actually pinpoint any one force or one reason, it's never one reason, but it's almost the same set of underlying reasons together. Hence the being a detective. I, I, I thought about you, by the way, before we met, I, I was like, this guy's going to be like Columbo. <laughs> you know the detective sherlock holmes asking the right question but i wanted to share a, another thing so when you understand the job like you mentioned with intuit they market differently the messaging becomes different so that's a huge consideration but also a thing that you recognize is so does the measurement because you're measuring for different things i'd love you to share this because this is often overlooked when people even talk about jobs theory so this is where you have to actually understand what is their notion of progress and how do you know that they're making the progress? Where do they actually evaluate when, when it's actually like, so, so when, when somebody buys a mattress, right, what is the clue that basically tells them that it's working, right? And if you don't have measurement, it's literally like, I don't know, well, oh, I woke up a little sore this morning and you break it in the bed. Nobody understands you have to break in the bed because at some point it has to learn how you sleep, Right. And so without setting those expectations, you don't really know if it's working or not working. But if I gave you one of these, it's called an aura ring, right? And it tells me how I sleep. And I literally do it before with my old mattress and I do it with my new mattress. I can actually tell you how, how much progress I'm making, right? And so a lot of times we measure progress from the supply side by units and segments and you know who uh, margins and things like that. But progress on the, on the demand side is 
what am I doing differently that I couldn't do before? And how much am I willing to pay in both time and money in order to, to do that? And so in a company, like basically a company has to basically think of two types of value, demand side value, which is progress and supply side value, which is profit. Can I actually make this product to actually help these people make the progress and make money at the same time? And you have to think of them as two completely separate things, not one thing. Bob, I thought one of the things, and, and this is a clear shift in your work, you mentioned about, you know, coaching, et cetera, and digging for jobs to be done in your own life. And even what you said earlier on about creating this death day and working backwards. I was telling you before about my own history and about deciding to call it quits on a, on a rugby career when I didn't really have to. And you rightly recognized, well, hey, and that's because you stopped making progress. And I was like, actually, that's why most people move a career because there's nowhere to go. And you become stuck and stale and angry and resentful. So you leave. And I'd love you to share your thoughts on applying jobs to be done to yourself. This is a very big passion of mine. Like, like, so I've been interviewing people for almost six years now um, of what caused them to say, today's the day I'm going to leave this company and go to that company, right? Or I'm going to take that position. And, and, and it's not just people who are kind of like in high positions, but it's, we looked at what caused somebody to leave uh, McDonald's to go to Chipotle or, you know, a uh, Home Depot to go start their own business and people who were uh, successful lawyers and became judges, like what would cause them to like make less money and work harder? Like, trying to understand like all that dynamic. And there's a couple of things that are just like, like across all that research, there's just some really big shifts that are happening that I like, like just at a big high level. One is this whole aspect of, um, you know, employees are actually hiring companies more than companies are hiring employees. And when you flip that lens, you start to realize the job description does not accurately help me understand what I'm going to do day to day and will I be challenged and what's going on. And so you start to realize HR, which is trying to build the legal compliance to something and basically here's, here's the job description, but it doesn't give enough information to know what problems am I going to solve? Who am I interacting with? All that other stuff. And you start to realize like job descriptions are very, very flat and interviews are actually very, very flat. At the same time, you start to realize most people don't know what they're good at. They don't know actually what they should be doing next. They, all they know is they're not making progress. And so typically they, they get so fed up and they finally leave and they go find a job that's actually really similar to their, their old job, but it's actually worse. And so what you start to realize is that then they get afraid to, to, to actually change because they don't know what they're good at. And more importantly, they don't know what they suck at. And the more you can start to realize what you're not good at, then you actually can start to help to shape the job description of the best job for you and you're making progress. And as long as you're making progress, you will stay. And the moment you stop making progress, now, here's the caveat. You could not be making progress at work. Like I'm just doing the same thing because at home, I got a lot of change going on at home. So I'm still making progress as a human, but I'm not necessarily making progress at work because I need work to be the stability part of everything else is changing. But you have to be making progress in your life somewhere. Because if you're not, you will then go seek ways in which to have new ways to make progress. And that's kind of the premise of this next book I'm writing called Hire Your Next Job. And it's the it's looking at it from how do we actually look back and understand what we're good at, what we suck at, what gives us energy, what sucks our energy, and building a job requirement, the requirements for your next job. 
so you can understand the trade-offs you have to make. If I want more money, then what am I willing to do to give up in order to get it? Because you can't, you can't just wish for a best job because it doesn't come. Every job has trade-offs and you have to be prepared to make them. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. A beautiful way to, to wrap it up as well. I, I was thinking to myself, why do I hire a guest for the show? <laughs> Great storytellers, good camera, beautiful setup, portraits of their mentors. <laughs> a final word, Bob, on Clay, because this series is dedicated to him and his work and the theories and, and those people who worked with him. I think the, the, the most important thing that I think about every single day is outside his office, he had a sign called, uh, and it basically had, it was in, written in, in uh, Sharpie, and it said, Anomalies Wanted. And it's one of the reasons why I walked into his office, right? Because I'm an anomaly. And I'm like, okay, like I don't really belong to be in these halls and I happen to be there for another reason, but that, that, I, I'm going to knock on that door. And all I did is knock on his door and say, like, how can I help? What are you doing and what can I help with? And he just looked at me and said, you know, I've been here for two years and nobody's ever asked me how they, how they could help. And he's like, well, let me tell you what I'm doing. And literally that's how we became friends, right? And so, and so to me, most of the time as an engineer, I've been taught to basically ignore anomalies. But what I've learned is that all innovation requires anomalies and that anomalies are worth the study. And that, to be honest, the, 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 the anomalies of today, right, basically are the DNA of tomorrow. So what we need to do is understand how does this anomaly actually happen? And when that happens, like what causes it to happen and how many other people want to actually go that way? And you start to realize that most anomalies are, carry that DNA of where we're headed. And that all comes from Clay. I am so looking forward to meeting you in person and doing a full deep dive on your own book as well. And it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Bob Mesta, Anomaly, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Nice one, man. Awesome. Thanks as always to Next Estate, sponsors of The Innovation Show. You can find Next Estate in Berlin, in Germany, where they are specialists in buying, selling, and managing property. The website is next-estate.com.